Hey guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. So I want to pivot a little bit. So, you know, you know, it's great to have all these highs and all of that, right? But, you know, we've all got struggles in our dental journey. So, you know, have there been some that our viewers may not have known about? Oh, well, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm quite an open book. And in terms of the people that I talk to regularly or bump into, um, I try to make it very clear that it's not all just kind of sunshine and rainbows because on the daily I encounter situations where I feel like I don't have the full picture but I think I'm very lucky within the hospital in that there's usually someone to ask um I think so I've alluded to previously that navigating the hospital system um uh, was uh, it was probably one of the hardest things initially just in terms of making sure I was following all the protocols that I was very unaware of and um so I think I had a couple of difficult interactions um with some of the the senior staff that were kind of obviously didn't say this but were kind of like why are you an idiot like what are you doing <laughs> why are you here silly dentist um actually yeah so i i think all of my struggles have probably turned into core memories because i feel like well, we need a bit of trauma to, to strengthen us um but yeah, I, I had one interaction one interaction with an anesthetist and I was like, hello, I've got this um, five-year-old patient that's had a dental trauma, handed over the case. And then all they said to me was, are you old enough to open this theatre? <laughs> I just didn't know what to say. And I just thought, well, so I, I had a, a really good debrief with one of my other friends that's kind of surgically inclined within medicine. And she said, all you needed to say was, yes, of course I'm qualified to do my job. Um, but obviously as a young woman with a slightly squeaky voice um, in a, a world that um, is changing and with every generation. Um, and, yeah, I, I think we're definitely making progress towards a more um, inclusive and kind and patient workforce. But also sometimes you speak to people and you're like, well, I know you've just come off a 15-hour shift and you're exhausted and you've had all these people asking you silly questions, so you kind of understand why they're a bit unhappy, um, but equally, yeah. So occasionally you do get some, when you're trying to do a phone referral, you do get a little bit of pushback from other people that um, if, you, if you don't know how to say things the right way and you don't know how to ask the right question or you don't know who to talk to, sometimes it can be a bit hard because you kind of end up in this little cyclone within the switch and you're like, I don't know who I'm talking to or what I need to do next. Um, so... Yeah, I think that was definitely one of the big ones, just in terms of um, knowing that I was doing the right thing enough to back myself and hold my ground and navigate that system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing. And then I guess, yeah, just in terms of um, like we see so much Enronge and we see so much ORN and there are so many things that you kind of, Like, it was really interesting when I was handing over to the incoming registrar when I was leaving Monash. There are so many things now that you've kind of just normalised. And he was like, this is stuff you only see in textbooks, right? (laughs) (laughs) 
this is this is our daily reality which um and i guess it's like hard on reflection to have as much perspective and insight as i did at the start um but yeah we are just thrown so many curly cases so many borderline things i'm one of the most indecisive humans you will ever meet, which I guess is the beauty of patient-centred care. You just say, here are your options. <laughs> what would you like to do? Um, obviously within reason. And you, One, two, three, four, uh, five, you, six, seven. <laughs> yeah. Um, but obviously we do need to provide appropriate guidance in terms of risk stratification and counselling. Um, so I think something that I really struggle with is making irreversible decisions um, in terms of how to approach treatment, I guess, and um yeah so I even recently I think like having moved to the NT on paper the Monash job and my job at the hospital here are very similar but the the clinical reality and the um the yeah the, the patient um kind of the load is a little bit different because unfortunately there's so much rheumatic heart disease up here there are so many um congenital cardiac anomalies that I hadn't really had to deal with before I moved up here because most of our cardiac pathology went to the Royal Children's when I was in Melbourne. Um, and, yeah, just really curly kind of borderline situations where it could go one way or it could go the other. I think I really struggle with thinking, okay, but what's actually in the best interest of this patient and how do we manage this? But yeah, as I said, I've been very lucky in terms of knowing, well, it's fine, I'll just call the cardiology registrar or, oh, it's fine, I'll just I'll speak to the the ID reg kind of thing. Mm. Um, and we had all of our dental team as well that was able to provide guidance and reassurance. So um, I used to do a lot of tutoring when I was in undergrad and I said to some of my students, because I feel like they were struggling with the same kind of lack of confidence in their own decision-making and ability. And for some of them, I was like, do I just need to get you a little bobblehead to put on your desk when you're doing your exam so it can just nod there and provide that little kind of reassurance um I feel like sometimes maybe I just needed that but I was very lucky to have that in John our consultant at Monash so if we ever were a bit unsure we could always just ask so um yeah I, I mean I've got I've got a few comments for you there so um let's let's dive into your first example right so in the example where, um, you know, the, 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 the senior um, anesthetist was like, are you, you know, old enough to open it, um, open up the surgery? I think for our listeners, probably they would relate when, you know, patients would come in and be like, are you old enough to take out this tooth? When did you graduate? Right. So I can see where that relation would come in um, in a clinical setting. In, my, in the second one, though, I would say, you know, I don't know if it's possible within a hospital setting. And I know my my experience when talking to um, the UK dentist, you know, taking records is quite tricky, but would it be possible in, in, in the setting to, you know, take records, photos, um, oh. and then models and stuff yeah, like yeah. that to discuss later? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do that very routinely um, in terms of, OPGs, models, photos, we, yeah, we have so many photos um, that we kind of end up turning into teaching resources with appropriate consent and patients, of course, um, in terms of learning opportunities from all of these curly kind of cases. And, um, yeah, I think that's something that's really, really important. And also from a patient education perspective, because if you're encountering patients that are having these bizarre complications or well, not bizarre, like probably largely predictable in a lot of situations, but having these complications that are somewhat rare and when you see them in practice, having that um kind of set of 
resources to refer to kind of prompts you, I guess, in terms of thinking, oh, yeah, we should probably discuss this with our patients or, um, yeah, so absolutely. I think I've been pretty lucky in that everywhere that I've worked, I've been able to say, may I please have this much time? And they've been very supportive of giving me time, which I know is not a luxury that a lot of my colleagues in private practice have because they're obviously KPIs and financial pressures that their practice managers are trying to enforce. Um, and so I've been very lucky to be immune from that. And obviously the NHS is another kettle of fish in terms of 15-minute appointments and go, go, go. Um, I think I just pay for it in terms of overtime. But that is fine because I'm very happy to be there with the serenity of a quiet hospital other than the cleaners that come in and say, oh, you're still here. I'll come back in an hour. Um, just to kind of process things and think about things and consult with my colleagues and read the literature. And, um, yeah, I I think on reflection maybe I've just kind of compartmentalised all of those experiences but every little bit of um, kind of friction or every little fumble that I've made has been a very good growth opportunity and there's there's definitely something to reflect on from each of them that I now carry with me and has informed my practice so um, there yeah it's good to have those little blips and to be kind of slapped into into line if you've not quite got the right idea of things so yeah, I mean, can I ask, you mentioned literature, right? So, you know, it's it's easy when you're doing, like, I would say easier when you're doing general dentistry. You know, there's lots of papers out there. But when you're talking about, you know, you know, very complex special needs, you know, how do you as a clinician go out and find these resources to know where to look? Because, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know, but, you know... So with a complex um, patient that I had, it was a three-year-old with, with like six different congenital cardiac anomalies um, that was going in for the third stage of a cardiac repair. And I it just kind of initially all went over my head and thought, okay, well, we'll just sit down and systematically kind of work through this. The RCH guidelines are amazing. All the RCH um, kind of protocols are, oh, and um, also information pages are very good starting points there um and then generally the like the british society of pediatric dentistry or the there are there are big societies that produce these consensus papers and guidelines and things that you can always follow i guess um i guess it's a matter of finding them but generally if you talk to someone who considers your little conundrum to be their bread and butter they're very happy to point you in the right direction of those resources but just live on google scholar it's fine <laughs> there are there are all these papers that you can kind of trawl through um, and if there's an absence of evidence then i guess that's a point of excitement it's something that you can kind of take in terms of your research direction like okay well better answer this question um so, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't struggled to find resources. I've been pretty lucky. Um, and, yeah, just we would always have it when actually we'd have a monthly audit um, and we'd have discussions around those kind of curly cases. Someone would kind of present the, the background literature and discuss the direction. And, um, yeah, so, I, I, yeah, I, I don't I mean, think I've really had too much. As, as a member of the hospital, do you get access to, you know, particular journals as a member that, you know, might yeah, make it a little bit easier? Yeah, have libraries, so we're quite lucky on that front. But the ADA library um, is 
very well stocked with resources. So I think even though you don't necessarily have access if you just jump on Google as a private dental practitioner, um, generally if you search for those same papers through the ADA library, your membership will give you access to most things, I would say. I haven't really struggled to download anything. Um, yeah. yeah, the ADA is pretty good resource if you're a member of it. Um, I want to talk about the art of saying no as a new graduate. And talking about patients with unrealistic expectations, you know, doing, you know, experience-based treatment, you know, saying no, like you've alluded to, the senior clinicians, you know, when it's about working overtime, squeezing in additional appointments. I mean, I, I, it's not coming from my mouth, but I mean, I've heard someone talk about this before, so... Yeah, it's a toughie and it's it's hard because I think I initially was quite submissive because I thought, oh, I'm just a teeny tiny graduate. I don't know anything. Um, how do I possibly have the experience or the, the knowledge to back myself here? I think the, the good thing about us being fresh from dental school is at least our understanding of the contemporary body of evidence that should be guiding our practice is a bit more up to date than people that perhaps have been out for 40 years that might not have moved with the times in terms of um, adopting new classifications. I'm a, I'm a big ICDAS girl. Um, and, yeah, I, I think just in terms of um, backing ourselves in terms of having the fundamentals down pat in that sense, obviously there's so much that we don't know. Um, and I think obviously you need to approach these situations where you're in a bit of a... I guess a bit of a conflict um, with humility and know your limitations as a practitioner. Um, but equally, I think there are definitely certain situations where you have to set boundaries in the interest of self-preservation. Um, and obviously it's hard because if you have a really full clinical day, you start off, well, we hope that you start off fairly fresh and well-caffeinated and rejuvenated by a beautiful night's sleep. Um, and as the day goes on, if you just are kind of pumping in all these extra bits and pieces and facing different situations, I guess your um, innate capacity for resilience might be tested a little bit. Um, and so I feel like you need to kind of yeah, set these boundaries to make sure that you are the best version of yourself and the best possible dentist that you can be in the interest of patient care. And it's, yeah, definitely a bit of a marathon sometimes as the day goes on. But I think that article that I wrote was kind of born from my manager, Sam at Monash, saying, mate, have you eaten today? Like, are you, are you looking after yourself? Like, you need to come first in this because if you're an absolute mess, if you can't form a centre, and that's, I guess, tiredness, presents differently and stress present differently in different people. But I definitely notice if I can't form a sentence, there is a problem. I'm hungry or I'm tired or uh, I don't know. Um, and obviously talking to patients is a big part of our job, um, especially I think in the, the special needsy world, we have a lot of discussions with our patients. Like we need to work out their medical background, what they're on, what's happening. And then obviously need to chat through often very complex clinical situations with them to make sure that they're fully informed in the decision-making process. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm getting better at it. And I guess it's really, it's really frustrating because as a fresh grad, 
you kind of hear the like, oh, you you'll get the experience. In time. <laughs> It'll get easier, but you can't change that. And you're like, but how do I fix this now? How do I navigate this situation? Um, and I guess the answer is, if you're unsure, just give me a ring, call somebody that you trust and that has that experience to kind of supplement your own. Um, but yeah, saying no. And I think one of the big things that you probably face um, is patients presenting to you with very set and rigid ideas of um, like people will come to you and be like, hi, um, can I have a clean, but not a checkup. That's an experience that I've never had, but I've heard some colleagues in private land have had that and you're like well that's kind of negligent we can't do that I'm sorry I know you're kind of dictated by your health fund and financial constraints um but you also do need to act in your patient's best interest and own sometimes and so sometimes no treatment is also a good option like I had a lady the other day that needs a pre-anti-resorptive clearance and is just so so stressed about the possibility of getting embrange um but has beautiful teeth a little bit of perio but beautiful teeth like exceptional oral hygiene and she said can you just take them all out please I don't want to deal with this and I said I'm sorry I just do not sit well ethically with removing a mouth of otherwise sound teeth when I can just send you to our friendly periodontist down the road who's going to take care of you like you brush your teeth it's just a matter of getting rid of a couple of decades worth of calculus that's sitting under there um so yeah obviously in terms of kind of navigating the spectrum of paternalistic um, practice to patient-centred care, we still want to gravitate towards the patient-centred side, but in terms of your comfort of providing services, and I guess that applies also to your comfort in terms of scope as well, like referring out things that you think perhaps are beyond your capabilities to provide safely and always offering patients the ability to go and see the local specialist for a second opinion. Um, is a very important part of your consent discussions with patients, obviously. So um, I think now that I'm listening to myself after these chats, the, the crux of everything that I seem to have to say is just like talk to other people that know how to do things perhaps a little bit better than you do as a, a fresh graduate. Because even if you're not doing the case, referring on to a specialist that you have a good relationship with, allows for an opportunity to have a debrief and to kind of talk through how they'd approach their problems and um that i think that level of follow-up is something that's really important to be able to see the um the progression of your patient and the um yeah i guess the, the complications that they might face or their patient experience and kind of use that to guide your future management as well until yeah. you can build the confidence yourself Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It would really mean the world to me if you have found any part of this podcast useful to leave us a five-star review so we can reach more people and help them reach their goals of being a more successful dental professional quicker. Now back to the episode. I think I think it's a great point because like obviously a lot of times when you graduate you think you're like you're 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 by yourself you know and sometimes you can't reach yeah. out you know people aren't as friendly as you would think but realistically if you try to reach further out you might be able to um, get that support and um, yeah. yeah my own experience is the same I feel like um, to your point when sometimes you know lunch times are uh, being blocked off or you know you run overtime whatnot i usually just carry an apple with me just to kind of you know at least you get something before you jump into your next one because you know everyone's always talking about running late as, at the dentist 
Um, but yeah. yeah, to your point, you also got to decompress. Sometimes you just got to, you know, sometimes just step outside the room, just decompress for a little bit to kind of reframe your mind before jumping back in. Um, and to say no to patients, I find that sometimes, yeah, you just got to lay it down. Um, and if they don't get it, then, you know, it's, you just, you, you can only provide what you can do and, you know, you, your own experience, would you want that done in your mouth? Like, yeah, exactly. And obviously it gets quite tricky in situations where you can sense that there's a bit of care is stress. Like if mum's deteriorated, mum's not verbal anymore, she can't really look after herself or advocate for herself. And if you've got kind of like children in the mix or like parents that are caring for children with special needs, um, often they, I find, will push for particular treatment modalities that I deem to be somewhat inappropriate um and so i guess yeah that's the thing you always need to say look there are some colleagues down the road if you'd like to go and see them you're very welcome to have a second opinion i imagine they'll probably corroborate my thoughts but just for your peace of mind i think this is going to be a good option for you and so it's it's never a hard no it's just often a bit of a pivot um and i think often if you take the time to work on their health literacy and discuss things with them and know very quickly becomes a oh it makes sense on their end um yeah and that kind of goes to your your point that you were kind of chatting about before in terms of there always being someone that you can ask I was having a very good chat with a friend about this yesterday um and because I think perhaps her mentorship hasn't been quite as she'd imagined based on the the initial chats that she had with her current employer. And I said, well, if you're not getting that support internally, the specialists that you're interacting with have a financial incentive to look after you because other, they're a referral-based service. They're not going to get patients if the general dentists aren't referring them anyone. So chatting to them and building that relationship is mutually beneficial. Um, so I know it's I know some people are very averse to picking up the phone and having a chat with people. Um, and I guess that's something that I've kind of got over having worked in the hospital system because we're just constantly on calls. Um, but yeah, there's always someone you can talk to. And I guess if anyone is struggling, I'm always happy for them to approach me. So um, not that I have all the answers, but I, I might know someone that does. So be careful. Yeah. Your DMs might be lo- fully loaded, you know, after this episode gets released. Um, but no, to your point, yes, I, I've had my own experiences in the past where, you know, um, when I was working out in adapter, I'd just, I'd, something would happen and it was a bit off from what I was used to. And I was like, is this normal? And then I'd, and, uh, maybe no other clinician had an experience and they couldn't tell me what was going on. So yeah, you just call up the oral surgeon and be like, this is kind of what happened. And he's like, it's okay. This is you know, this will be what will happen. And then, you know, you just explain it to the patient the same way and then they get it and then you just, you know, carry on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's kind of the, the calmness and the serenity that comes with having spoken to someone that's seen that experience or had that complication before that you kind of just need sometimes a bit of reassurance for you and for the patient. It happened to me last night. I um, I got a call about a little two-year-old that had an intrusion injury and they'd kind of seen a couple of people and no one really knew what was going on or what to do or how to manage it or how to talk to mum and dad. Don't worry, I've got this. I'll call mum or have a chat. Um, And I think if you can kind of, yeah, clearly outline what's to come, what to look for, 
um, and how we're going to deal with the problem. As long as you're providing solutions, I think that's generally quite well received. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my case, that was like I was injecting and then there was like blanching around like the side of the face and it was like, oh, you know, the oral surgeon was like, it's okay, it'll slowly subside and it'll be all right. But to your point, like there's probably been other cases where I've had difficult endos and then I would, you know, message um, the, the, the specialist about it, you know, what's your opinion on this? How do I go about it? And they'll just, you know, decompress it and it'll just you know, take a breather and just slow it down to explain it to you. So, um, and uh, there's been instances where I've, after those instances, you might follow it up with, uh, when they do go and see the specialist, you just follow the case along or even not like on your time off, you just go and observe the specialist, um, to kind of see what they kind of do. Yeah. yeah, and most of them are pretty happy to do that because they're exceptionally passionate about their scope. Um, and they, I think they know that they have that self-awareness that because they're in this specialty, they're dealing with situations that the average general dentist generally doesn't feel comfortable to, to navigate. So, um, yeah, I guess if you, if you go with the approachable ones, they generally have time to teach and to talk, which I think yeah. is really important in terms of our clinical development. And also it's in their best interest because if you get less terrible referrals, it makes your day a bit more manageable so yeah but also but also it's like you know when you refer the patient off and then you know you you sometimes don't know what the the um the specialist is like and after having communicated with the specialist you feel a lot more comfortable referring your case to the patient uh no sorry to the specialist um and you feeling confident you know they're going to look after your patient well they know the case a little bit as well yeah, it's kind of like a cumulative effect. It's, yeah. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So I want to talk about work-life balance a little bit here, you know, because as most outsiders, you know, looking at you would think, you know, you're doing Colgate advocacy, you're doing the ADA, you know, recent graduates, you know, you're doing all, all this stuff, hospital dentists as well at the same time, you know, how do, how do you do it, Emma? How do you do it? i the spice of life if we've had a rough day we like to go to have a chat to people that we like as a bit of a de-stress and so I guess all these like meetings and clubs have just been a way of building a robust professional network and a bunch of friends so I don't really consider it to be work I guess the so with my oral health advocacy gig I've conventionally done written articles and I just turned into a bit of a keyboard warrior I'm like what have I seen in terms of suboptimal care or common clinical problems? Like my most recent article that I've heard or that's been published was on um, dental care and pregnancy because we just had all these ladies that were coming into ED that had been refused care with kind of pericoronitis or with like active odontogenic infection. Um, and it just became a bit of a pattern. I was like, but the ETG says that we can safely see patients for relief of pain throughout pregnancy. It's just elective treatment that should happen in some trimester. Anyway, um, so basically with my my oral health advocacy hat, I just use that as a way to kind of consolidate my thoughts on um, things that I'm seeing as patterns that potentially we have scope to improve upon within our profession. So that's quite therapeutic. So I don't mind. I, I, I really enjoy that. And then in terms of my other responsibilities, yeah, it's just, it's, they're like very social pursuits. And I think in terms of, you just need to kind of be mindful. They're squeezing little things for you. Like 
a couple of weeks ago, I realized, oh, I've like been back to Perth and I've been doing this over time and I haven't been to any exercise classes. And I think especially in dentistry, you realize that back prophylaxis is a very important part of having a sustainable career. And I just, now that I'm back in the swing of going to Pilates regularly, I'm like, okay, we got this. This is fine. Um, but yeah, I just, I kind of like, I, I think I thrive on the controlled chaos. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm a bit erratic and I'm a bit, I, I probably take on too many things, but um, I just, I like the variety. Like there's a bit more to life than teeth. I know a lot of my, my ex-curriculars are also kind of <laughs> too fermented, but um, yeah, I, I think I do need a bit of a balance in addition to clinical dentistry, which is why I really kind of like the variety of being a hospital because I teach the students on the Tuesdays. Um, it's not just constant drilling and feeling like we go up to theatre, we go to the head and neck cancer, multidisciplinary meetings. The cleft clinic is my favourite time of the month or like up here we have them quarterly because I think there's a smaller cohort of cleft patients. But cleft clinic is just the best and you just talk to all these different people and, um, yeah, and then I guess outside of work, it, I just, it fills my cup, I think, to be involved in different things in conjunction with obviously like social sports and baking and going for coffees with friends and doing normal adult human things that we also need to do in addition to teeth all day, every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as a founding member of the Colgate Advocacy, you know, group for oral health, you know, if younger dentists want to take part in such advocacy kind of roles, you know, how do you suggest they do that? Just ask the question. I, so I was approached by Sue, who is the, uh, I don't want to get her title wrong, but she's the the scientific, I should really know what her title is. This is terrible, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, Sue is wonderful. You've probably seen her face around um, in the, like when they do the visits to the school, she's probably in that publication or like in the, um, in the promotion material kind of thing very lovely lady. So she approached me when I was in my final year and said, would you be interested in doing some content creation? And I said, I have to think about it. And then she said, but you should, and it kind of went from there. So, um, yeah, I think they do occasionally we'll have outgoing members, um, that they'll look to replace. So one of my very good friends, Hayden Bathurst was recruited because he put together a very good video. He's an excellent videographer, um, and so he was recruited a bit later than our founding member cohort, um, and I'm sure they'll be looking to take on people within the program who are really keen to do a bit of content creation. But um, I guess, yeah, outside of that, if there's anything that you want to get involved with, just ask the question. I think passionate people will be real, well received um, by those kind of views, and I think it's it's quite easy to see that people are genuine, and if you have kind of invested in developing skills that are relevant to particular pursuits or even if you don't have them and you're like, but this is what I'd really like to do, I, I'd need to start somewhere. And it, it's hard as well because I think like we were all kind of faced with the like prior experience required label um, when we were looking to apply for jobs and um, that kind of thing. So it's always a little bit daunting sometimes when you're trying to crack into something new thinking, oh, do I have the right experience? But I think we just need to back ourselves. Like, I yeah, think a lot of my friends will send me their CVs and I'm like, but you've got this, 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 and this that you do. And they're like, ah, oh, I guess so. But I'm like, no, you're amazing. You're such a complex person. You've got so much going on. I think people tend to undersell themselves when they're applying for things. Um, so, yeah, I think you've just got to demonstrate your passion and also your ability and it'll, it'll come to fruition. 
Yeah, 100%. I agree with that. I mean, like, if you're if you're interested in that field, like, just reach out to someone. Like, even as part of the recent graduate committee at, at, at ADA, ADA as well, like, that does not limit you as, as being part of the member. You can ask, can you sit in on these um, subcommittee um, meetings? And then you get to see what's behind the scenes. And then if that still yeah. entail, uh, interests you, then you just follow it up in the following year and then apply. And if you don't, it's okay. Like, just, just keep asking if you can keep attending and then just go from there. I agree. That's the thing. Because I feel like unless you open that first door, you just have no idea what else is out there. And then once you start talking to more and more and more people, you kind of get a sense of other opportunities and it just, it's like a little hurricane that opens them all. Um, it is. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, if the other person doesn't know that you're interested, how they're supposed to, you know, open the door for you? That's, you know. That's very true. Yeah. So, Dr. Emma, you know, you're a big inspiration to a lot of younger graduates around you. Even I can see that. But um, if you could share some words of wisdom, you know, to the budding young dentist, what would it be? Oh my gosh, words of wisdom. You got you to put the hat on. Yeah, it's going to get better, you guys. I cried, like, every other day at dental school. I was so close to dropping out. Medi was good. He kept me in line. He was like, no, don't be stupid. You're fine. What, what happened? Really? Oh, just all the time. I was like, I can't do this. I'm a disaster. I'm not like helping any patients. I don't know what to do. Like I, I, I can't do this. I, I don't know. It was just, I found it so hard. And I, I think on reflection, perhaps it's because our tutors were like, you're fine. We don't need a molly to coddle you kind of thing. Um, and perhaps, they, well, I guess everyone at the dental school was also kind of wearing too many too many hats and and had a lot of responsibilities that kept them busy. Um, and I kind of always joked that there was a little line of ducklings following our prosthodontist when we had our rusted half day off, just trying to get treatment plans signed and things. Um, but I think there's, there's, it was largely to do with internal pressures. Um, and I think there's a big issue with perfectionism in our very kind of type A presenting um, kind of person that tends to gravitate towards dentistry. And so I guess a lot of it was just me wanting to uphold standards for myself that were perhaps unreasonable as a second year dental student, like shouldn't have all the answers really. Um, and so, yeah, it's dental school is really hard. It's, it's so hard. It's unlike anything else. And I think like, having full responsibility, well, not full responsibility, supervised responsibility, but with a lot of autonomy over the direction that your treatment plans are taking at a student level in second or third year, depending on the course that you're in, weighs very heavily upon you. Um, and, yeah, I think my my biggest word of wisdom would just be to not be afraid to ask people questions where they're being paid to answer your questions and um and if they're not there being paid to answer your questions, like just friends and mentors that are tangential to um, the academic institutions or that are outside your place of work, um, then they're probably also very happy to help you because they've been through similarly trying situations um, and have learned something from those. So just talk to people. You need perspective and you need reassurance. And it's hard talking to non-dental friends, like, my mum 
love her to bits and she's the best mum but she was so dismissive she was like Emma I've seen you make cakes and I've seen you do all these crafty things of course you have good hand skills I'm like no mum I can't do it um so yeah many a breakdown in the sim clinic but um yeah I think it's important to have a balance of friends within dentistry and outside of dentistry like you need the break from the tooth talk but you also need people that get it so I think that balance is probably something that is I find that's very important to strive for yeah no I, I completely understand because like to make it in dentistry you've been a high achiever your whole your whole time you know through primary maybe high school and then you know, you're coming in with a certain mindset, like you're, you're, you know, you're good at it, but then you're coming in where everyone's on the same kind of similar kind of boat, you know, high achievers all in the one room, um, trying to achieve something that you feel like you're normally, you know, supposed to be good at. So it just all kind of builds up. Uh, I've had my own experiences back in dental school where same pros just, just kind of broke me down, um, at, at points. So totally relatable, totally relatable. Here you are doing your little masters. <laughs> full circle, full circle, right? So, um, Dr. Emma Turner, thank you for coming on the show today. Could you let the people know how they can find you? Oh, Perry Pigeon. No, you'll find a way. Um, I will get Lawrence to distribute my details. So we can we can send them out later. <laughs> You can find her on Instagram, yeah. Um, <laughs> if you like this episode, drop a comment below on your favorite part or leave a review. Don't forget to share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next episode of CP Junkie Podcast.